Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin, in San Francisco, California today. And as always, I am joined by um, Bob Bazenko in Houston. And uh, as always, we thank you for listening and watching and sharing and <clears throat> um, subscribing on YouTube and, and uh, liking and following us on social media and all that kind of stuff. And um, later on, Scott will give you some information on donating if you're so inclined. Um, today, we have a, a really special show and a special guest. Uh, as you know, we're really interested in international relations here. We think the left has to expand beyond the United States. And so we've recently done shows on uh, the COVID and uh, crisis and farmers protests in India. And we just did a great show on the repression in Bolivia. And so today we're going to talk about clearly one of the most important areas in the world, uh, and that's Palestine. And we're uh, here today with somebody who I've known for a, a really long time. I think we got to Houston around the same time. Uh, he is a professor. Uh, at Rice University, Usama Makdisi. He's the Arab American Education Foundation professor in Arabic studies at Rice, prolific author of many things, including most recently uh, in 2019, The Age of Coexistence, uh, The Ecumenical Frame and the Making of the Modern Arab World. In 2010, Faith Misplaced, Faith Misplaced, The Broken Promise of U.S. Arab Relations. And in 2008, Artillery of Heaven, American Missionaries and the Failed Conversion of the Middle East. He is one of the uh, most recognized scholars of this region in the entire world. He's traveled all over and given lectures and talks all over the place. And so thank you so much, Usama, for, for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for being here. It's good to, to see you again, Bob, and it's yeah. nice to meet Scott. It's, it's great. Um, first, we're going to start. I just thought you might kind of give a little background because, you know, obviously the U.S. media, the mainstream media doesn't really go into this much. And you know, like I said, you don't have to go back to Balfour, but maybe she could just kind of explain you know, like what the Nakba was and what Zionism is and, you know, kind of just the, the the actual conditions in Palestine, just kind of as a little primer so that we can go from there and be more specific. Yeah, I mean, uh, trying to summarize the entire history in, in a yeah. few sentences. <laughs> yeah. Basically, basically what I would say is, is that, uh, you know, this, this entire sort of uh, what's always presented as... Um, conflict in in the Middle East as an age-old conflict is in fact a very recent modern conflict and it begins really when European Zionists um, um, in the 19th century you know responding to nationalism to anti-semitism and in a climate of European sort of racism and colonialism decided to create a Jewish state to respond to these the issues of nationalism and anti-semitism in Europe and they they eventually focus on Palestine decide on Palestine as the location of that Jewish state. And the problem that the Zionists recognized very early on was that basically this place, Palestine, was inhabited uh, by people. And those people are the people we refer to today as Palestinians. And they were the native population. They were the overwhelming majority of the population. And, you know, to make a very long story short, basically the British come in and uh, create a mandate, a colony, basically. The last colonialism, Bob, this is actually really germane. It's the last colonialism that I'm aware of in the modern world, or one of the last colonialism, certainly the last Western colonialism in the post-World War I period. Um, Indochina. 
Oh, in the Arab world, okay. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the in terms of yeah. the the Western yeah. colonialism, in terms of the Arab, right. Western colonialism, yes, in terms of the yeah. Arab East. So, sorry about that. That, yeah. that goes on um, um, all the way. Of course, I mean, Palestine goes on till today, but the, but the the truth of the matter is that um, the British create a mandate uh, which privileged European Zionists, who eventually in 1948 drive out the native population, the Palestinians, make them stateless to create a Jewish state. And that's what in, in Arabic and what Palestinians and Arabs refer to as the Nakba, which means the catastrophe. What the Israelis refer to as their war of independence was, of course, from a Palestinian, from a native perspective, from an indigenous perspective, was a catastrophe because they were driven off their lands, out of their homes, their villages were destroyed, their towns were ethnically cleansed, and, and the result is what we see today. Palestinians are stateless. Um, and that's that's really like the, the quickest summary I could give right. in, in a nutshell. And and the Israel then occupied the rest of historic Palestine in 1967. So the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, the West Bank. So everything that we hear about today in the news uh, was occupied either in 1948 or in 1967. And uh, we're starting to see more and more use of the word apartheid to describe that, even though Bernie Sanders is now chastening us not, not to say that. But what are the actual kind of political and, and human rights for Palestinians in, in what is now, you know, seen as Israel on the map. Well, what I would do, and I would encourage all your listeners uh, to actually go read the Human Rights Watch report and go read the Betselem report and, and go read uh, as much as they can about the situation, not just in the West Bank, not just in East Jerusalem, not just in the Gaza Strip, but also inside of Israel itself to to understand the, the, the extraordinary um, the extraordinary nature of oppression and injustice that takes different forms in the in Gaza, which is a totally besieged um, area, um, the Strip with over two million Palestinians, many of whom I think 40 percent, 42 percent are under the age, if I'm not mistaken, I think 42 percent. You have to check this, but are under the age of 14 or 17. I mean, it, it's an uh, uh, an extraordinarily young population that's besieged and dehumanized and bombed, as we just saw the last few weeks, brutalized and dehumanized. And of course, they have no rights, and they are, and I mean, they have no rights vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli state, and they have no airport, they have no uh, exit. They're besieged by the Israelis and by the Egyptians. Um, but mostly by the Israelis, who, who really dominate the air uh, space above and the waters off Gaza and, and basically suffocate Gaza. So that's Gaza. East Jerusalem, you have Palestinians who, uh, of course, have been living there for centuries. They, they are residents, but they're not citizens. So they have certain rights, but they don't have citizenship rights. Uh, and of course, as we saw with Sheikh Jarrah, as we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, you know, the Israeli state is committed to, explicitly committed to colonizing East Jerusalem um, and expelling or making life as impossible as uh, for Palestinians as it can to drive, the, to essentially drive them out. I mean, the Israeli state makes no secret of its desire to colonize East Jerusalem and replace the Palestinian population there with as many Jewish settlers as possible. And, and everything in the state is designed to sort of maximize this, this injustice. The West Bank um, is the clearest, I think, sense of apartheid in the sense of two separate systems of law, uh, where the Palestinians who are occupied by Israel are not citizens, are under military occupation, and they have, you know, as anyone can see, if you read these reports, go read the Human Rights Watch report, go read the Beth Salem, which is an Israeli human rights 
uh, organization, if you read these reports, you will see there's two systems of law, one for Jewish citizens of Israel who settle in the West Bank illegally, and of course, the other for Palestinian natives who are uh, discriminated against at any number of levels. And so, and then of course you have within Israel itself, you have 20% of the population roughly are the Palestinians who were not expelled in 1948, um, who clung on, who, who stayed, who, who defied in a sense uh, and overcame um, the initial Nakba of 1948, but of course have been second-class citizens ever since uh, and are manifestly discriminated against in virtually every arena of life in that state. So that's the situation as it, as it is today. And of course, the US is the major sort of funder and defender of this system of injustice that Human Rights Watch and that B'Tselem and that frankly, any impartial observer who goes to this place will see and describe as apartheid and as injustice. So that's a nutshell summary. I mean, again, let the readers and listeners go read these reports because they speak for themselves, I think. In this most recent uh, attack by Israel on, on the Palestinians in Gaza, 250 Palestinians, the last report I saw, have been killed, 6,000 have been left homeless, and uh, there was a ceasefire declared on Friday after the 11 days of attack. And I'm just wondering what exactly that means and um, in what the, you know, what where is going to happen next. I know that, like, I saw a, a report that like even with like 12 hours, 15 hours later, Israeli troops were already back in mosques, you know, harassing, attacking uh, worshippers, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, this is the, the, the question, Scott. I mean, the, the structure of injustice and oppression and colonialism continues. The ceasefire just meant that means that the overt, the, the explicit overt sensationalist violence, the, the, the overwhelming Israeli bombardments of Gaza, the Hamas sort of uh, uh, fire uh, into Israel, um, these that has stopped now. So there's a ceasefire at that level. But as you know, as, as being said, there's no there's no secession to apartheid. There's no secession to colonialism. There's no secession to injustice. There's no secession to dehumanization. There's no secession to um, or secession of um, uh, of of the the extraordinary oppression that's ongoing now. So in other words, a structure more or less remains the same. It's going to be intensified, if anything. Um, but the immediate sort of uh, fighting um, between the Israeli state and the Hamas non-state um, has stopped for now. But, you know, again, that's just, a, it's a I would think of it as a truce, really. Yeah. Uh, Since you, you've mentioned Hamas a couple of times, because quite often in the United States media, especially, the, they conflate Hamas and, and the IDF as if yeah. these are two kind of equal combatants. And, you know, yeah. what, what is Hamas? You know, well, for, Hamas is, 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 I mean, Hamas describes itself as an Islamic resistance um, organization. It, it describes itself as a Palestinian Islamic resistance organization. It is described by the United States, uh, of course, as a, a terrorist organization and by the Israelis. But the point, again, for, for all listeners to understand is that Israel occupied Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem in 1967. Hamas was not even founded until the late 1980s. In other words, it's abundantly clear to any observer that the oppression, the injustice, the colonialism produces and inevitably calls forth various forms of resistance. And Hamas represents one of these forms of resistance. 
And of course, Hamas is a non-state. I mean, it's not a state. And right. The Israelis have an army and air force. And I've made this point several times, and I'll, I'll say it again. You know, there's a lot of condemnation. I mean, again, I've, uh, Biden has, has said it. I mean, they always, they repeat this mantra about Hamas rockets. And as condemnable as they are, um, as one wants to condemn them and say they're indiscriminate, which of course they are, um, what is never compared is the payload. I mean, if we're going to be like honest about this, we're talking about a state and a nuclear state with the latest sort of uh, weaponry supplied by the United States against the non-state actor. And in any case, this whole thing is a reflection of the manifest sort of injustice and colonialism and dehumanization that, that is the structure that informs everything else. I, and I'm, I'm kind of curious because there actually is a, a Palestinian authority and, I'm, and uh, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the interplay between Hamas and, and that Palestinian authority. Like, I mean, the Palestinian authority was set up after the Oslo process as a result of the Oslo process. Honestly, you could think of it in the history of colonial rule as one of the sort of great, and I don't mean this in a positive way, but the most insidious and tragic forms of, of colonial rule, indirect colonial rule, that you, you want to basically subcontract the occupation uh, to the Palestinians themselves uh, and allow the Israeli state to focus on the colonization of the West Bank and of East Jerusalem, uh, from which the Palestinian Authority, of course, was excluded. Um, and so you, you have this kind of, so the Palestinian Authority basically you could think of is a sort of um, a, um, a cover, a veneer of Palestinian uh, sovereignty without, of course, any real sovereignty, without any sovereignty, in fact. But, you know, you call him President Abbas, even though I don't know when his term ended, and he doesn't have a state over which, you know, it's a simulacrum of a state. There's no real Palestinian state. There is Israeli occupation. And there is the EU and the United States and others who subsidize, in effect, the occupation by, by keeping the, the, the Palestinian Authority afloat. And by, as the United States tells us over and over again, by continually sort of working with the so-called Palestinian security services to keep the Palestinians themselves in check. To, to repress the Palestinians, basically. That's what the PA has become, an incredibly corrupt organization, uh, authority, like, like uh, I mean, Bantustans and so on and so forth. I mean, we've seen these in, in, in the history of colonialism in other parts of the world, um, but we've never seen one as recent as this. I mean, th this is the whole thing about the whole situation in Palestine is, is the anachronism of the colonialism at work and the temporality of this anachronism. In other words, the lateness. It's, it's, it's in the 21st century and we're still talking about settler colonialism and natives and, and colonists and, and, this, and native authorities and so on and so forth. These things are extraordinarily anachronistic, which is why it's so jarring, I think, for people when they saw the videos coming out of Sheikh Jarrah and these, these colonists some from New York who go to Palestinian homes and literally walk into people's homes and occupy. I mean, it's it's so shocking and extraordinary that even the most sort of ardent apologists for Israel cannot, in good conscience and faith, look at that and say, "Oh, that's good." It's just shocking, honestly. And I think that's what motivated so much of the protests in the West, at least this time around. It's just so shocking and anachronistic that people were, were not. I think were not prepared to, uh, we had not realized just how anachronistic this is. 
to go back just a bit, because I think most people, especially people who listen to this, are aware of the U.S. role there. But, you know, maybe we could be a little even more because it's actually something I, I know a little bit about, too. The United States has spent like, the Federation of American Scientists has a big report on USA to Israel, and it estimates one hundred and fifty billion dollars. And that's only in direct military aid, I believe. So it's obviously significantly more than that. The U.S. has provided Israel, I believe, with, with fighter jets, right, and, and the Iron Dome technology. So what's, you know, in addition to that, it provides political cover. I don't know how many U.N. resolutions have been vetoed uh, by the U.S. So what's, you know, you just want to kind of expand on that a bit so people kind of know specifically what we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. has been Israel's main military, political, and economic patron uh, for decades now. And, and the reality is that the United States... Um, has, has had ample opportunity over the decades to sort of pressure Israel into any kind of peace agreement with the Palestinians that's, that has a modicum of justice and has chosen not to. Uh, it has chosen to either look the other way, subsidize the occupation, apologize for the occupation and the brutalization and the dehumanization of the Palestinians, and, and effectively has shielded Israel from any significant criticism over the decades, while of course supporting Israel with massive amounts of, of weaponry, with economic aid, with diplomatic support, um, and, and yet poses as the, the sort of the, the neutral arbiter or the, the, the peacemaker when it's manifestly on one side against the weaker, the more oppressed, the colonized side. I mean, it's really one of the great travesties uh, of modern diplomacy is the U.S. rule in sort of... Um, um, in, in destroying any possibility of any kind of real peace based on justice in, in the Middle East. They've chosen exactly the opposite. They've chosen to sort of uphold, I mean, and this came to a head with Trump. But of course, it's not just Trump. If anyone is honest, they would say it's clearly not just Trump. It's Obama, it's Trump, it's Biden, it's Clinton, it's Bush, it's, it's you know, and it goes all the way back. And you, we talked about Reagan earlier, and it goes earlier than that as well. It's it's a it's decades of U.S. policy, which is is just absolutely uh, immoral and bankrupt when it comes to, to to this issue. The striking juxtaposition of the stories last week, where Biden, like front page of the Washington Post, is Biden calls for ceasefire, Biden calls on Netanyahu for a ceasefire, while he's greenlighting a seven hundred million dollar arms sale to the Israelis, which they're using against the Palestinians and against Gaza. It's just like just striking and horrendous. Well, again, because it's because again, so much of this, so much. I mean, what's interesting about the moment we're in now is that the structures remain in place. So, not for a second should anyone pretend that the structures of oppression and the fact that the U.S. has subsidized and apologized and funded this oppression, this hasn't changed and is not going to change in the immediate future. But what has changed for the first time that I am aware of um, is that there's a apparently, and I'm hoping, a kind of a change on the part of people speaking out in this country in uncompromising language. In other words, language that does not sort of, uh, does not mince its words in terms of the injustice and the, the brutalization and dehumanization of the Palestinians. And for the first time, I think, in this country, there's a, a crack in the edifice of denial of the humanity and the history of the Palestinians. And so I think something, and so I think Biden is sort of in a sense out of sync with the moment. He represents, just like the democratic establishment represent the sort of reflexive talking points, um, you know, that, that we hear all the time, these mantras that we hear all the time and that are so offensive to anyone with, um, you know, eyes that can see or who has a sense of justice. In them. I also think Americans don't realize how isolated 
the U.S. is. I mean, it's virtually the only major country that takes this position. I mean, you literally have these votes in the U.N. that are, you know, like 180 to 2. With like in, the in the General Assembly. In the General Assembly, Assembly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I, although although Bob, frankly, you know, honestly, the EU the EU role is right, kind of right, scandalous, right, right. you know, in its yeah. own way, and sort of, uh, you know, the, the the European states have been absolutely um, complicit in this, and so too, of course, have the uh, many of the Arab states. But of course, the Arab states, I think, sure. of as, as colonized states or semi-colonized. I mean, they they don't really have any meaningful sovereignty, as far as I can tell. Um, um, but but they do also the bidding of the United States, whereas the EU. Has more autonomy, and yet it's it's also sort of scandalous, and it's and it's sort of um, it's constant. I guess the way I think of it is they keep looking the other way. They keep pretending that things are not as awful as they actually are, yeah. and people in this country, I think, and around the world, frankly, ultimately, when when they see the images coming out and the pictures coming out, and I'm talking about Muslims, Christians, Jews, secular, anyone, atheists, it doesn't matter who they are. When people see the actual imagery without the editing. I think it's very hard for most people to accept and condone outright dehumanization, brutality, racism, and colonialism, frankly, honestly. I think that's where, that's where we are right now. I have a question about the reaction in the West the, on the street, but a real quick question before that is, are there any social movements on the ground in Palestine that are not Hamas and definitely not the Palestinian authorities that you know, are relevant here that we should, you know, know about or have a better understanding of? Yeah, of course. There, there, are, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of social movements in, I mean, inside of, inside of historic Palestine, in other words, inside the state of Israel, inside of, uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, there are dozens of social movements, organizations, voluntary societies that are not Hamas and not the PA. I mean, they're, they're all, and, and, you know, I'm happy to, again, you could look them up yourself, but you know, you could you could start by looking at Adala, which is like this organization, a human rights organization inside. And you could there are so many others. I mean, again, the, the Twitter actually is is awash with these organizations. You just have to make an effort to see them. Um, of course, like Palestinians are people like any other, and have a, a vast diversity of opinions. But the one thing where there's unanimity is that the injustice itself is overwhelming and unacceptable, and the colonialism is ongoing and has to be at some point overturned. Especially in left media in the last couple of weeks, we've, I've seen the phrase turning point quite frequently, which kind of, and, and you just said there, you know, you're seeing things now that you hadn't seen before. And I think, you know, all of us who follow this would say that, but um, is it, I mean, is the kind of public opposition, it, you know, worth noteworthy? And, and do you can, you know, see this as something that kind of actually might make a difference? Cause you have, you know, even in Congress now you have, you know, a few Congress members uh, who, are, who are speaking out. Um, uh, Rashid Tlaib has obviously been, been very vocal in the United States. The New York Times had an article, uh, was it last Sunday, where they used the word miserable conditions on the front page in the headline. So, I mean, is that something you haven't seen before? Yeah, I mean, that, certainly the, the Rashid Tlaib in Congress, you know, saying what she said in Congress is a first. There's no doubt in my mind about that. And you know, insofar as she and others uh, reach out to millions of people in this country, there is, there is, they, they do reflect. She and, and the others reflect a change. The 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 synergy and the uh, the solidarity between Black Lives Matter um, and the Palestinian solidarity is also. It, it's not that solidarity between between Black Americans and Palestinian Americans is new. It's just that it's taking a new form now. I mean, this goes back to the 70s, and there's always been solidarity. Uh, since at least the 60s and 70s, but 
there's certainly now new forms of solidarity that are expressed in language that is legible to a lot of people in this country, to many. So I think that is a turning point. Now, there's a difference between saying there's a turning point and actually saying that the structures, the, the massive imbalance of political, economic, uh, institutional, military power are overwhelming still. I mean, there's no, nobody should pretend that this is, that a turning point means that there's change immediately in the offing. And there's going to be resistance. And as you know, Bob, I mean, this is the, you know, the case in every colonial situation. There's always going to be massive amounts of reaction, counter-revolution, um, resistance to, to, uh, to the humanization of the Palestinians. I, I don't doubt that. But I think something has fundamentally changed. People have found their voice. And I think once, and so much of, of um, the, the dehumanization of the Palestinians in this country requires the intimidation of people, requires the silence of people. Once that barrier is broken, something changes. And precisely because, I mean, I've said this before, but the Palestinian cause is a human cause. It's a cause that is ecumenical in the sense that Muslims, Christians, and Jews should all and can all meet uh, and basically fundamentally agree that colonialism is unacceptable, that oppression is unacceptable, that there has to be equal justice and equal rights for everyone in that land. That, frankly, is a non-negotiable for any kind of peaceful future, frankly. It's either that or it's continual oppression. So, Scott, do you want to uh, tell all of our listeners and viewers how to learn more about the Green and Red podcast and how to support us? Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash green red podcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Thank you. Share everything too. And uh, tell your friends. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, talking about support for the Israel lobby in the U.S., it's, it's been noted how, how it seems to be at least incrementally undermined and APEC has happened less influence with, with younger Jews to the point now where I think I saw a story the other day, I think Bob had, had shared it with me, but where the, you know, Netanyahu and the Israelis actually spend more time doing like outreach in the U.S. to Christian evangelicals than to, you know, uh, Jewish Americans. Yeah, but remember also that evangelicals, like uh, other communities in America, are diverse. And so that, you know, Christians also are diverse in America. And I think it's a mistake for, for anyone to assume that all evangelicals a, believe the same thing, and B, will always believe the same thing. So what you've had is a massive amount of propaganda, a massive amount of sort of, uh, frankly, insane apocalyptic thinking, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, in certain circles that's, that's been given essentially a pass because so many liberals have supported Israel as well in this country, that it hasn't been challenged. And so, you know, I wonder what's going to happen when the shift that we're seeing now you know, grows and, and develops and, and extends. So I think in the end, you know, uh, there are evangelical Christians, if I'm going to be generous, and, and, and I want to be generous, if evangelical Christians, of course, are, if, if they're truly devout, and they truly believe, uh, then they certainly should believe in justice and in, um, in freedom. So that, that's the way I think of it. I, I don't doubt that there's been um, a huge amount of effort 
on the part of, of the Israel lobby and, and all the, and the various uh, lobbies that work to sort of dehumanize the Palestinians and, and make them invisible. But I think the, the reality is that people can see, people of all faiths can see what is happening now on the ground. And one doesn't have to be a Muslim or a Christian or Jewish to actually understand that what's happening is unacceptable. And I think that is what I think the Israelis were taken aback by in this last few weeks. I think they were shocked by how much an outpouring of sentiment that none of us have actually seen in this country before to this extent. We never saw a congresswoman in Congress say the words that Rashida Tlaib said when she got up there, or AOC, or Ilhan Omar, or Cory Bush, or any of these, these extraordinary figures. Well, I mean, I, we've never seen groups, uh, crowds in Houston this big, you know, which right. is just also, remarkable, yeah. you know, yeah. all over all over the world. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, which, is, which is, yeah, it really has been remarkable. And I think it also attests that I think, you know, because this is generally presented, you know, as kind of some kind of religious conflict in, in U.S. media. And, and I definitely think we're seeing a break from that as well, where people are starting to look at it, you know, a little more deeply and kind of breaking it down. As you said, it's kind of a humanitarian issue, a human rights issue, or an issue of colonialism and, and ethnic Yeah, it, I wouldn't yeah. say it's not just humanitarian. It's it's political as well. I well, mean, it's yeah, both yeah, political, yeah. yeah, it's both political and humanitarian yeah. for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why I think it's so important to keep emphasizing and stressing the ecumenical nature of uh, a solidarity movement on behalf of the Palestinians. That includes, of course, Jews, Muslims and Christians and everyone else, not just not just monotheists in this in this sort of struggle for justice. I think the, the thing is, Bob, I've said this many times before, the Palestinian position is so basic. It, it's, it's virtually, you know, it's virtually, um, you know, when you think about it, it's so simple, which is to say, we're here, we have rights, we're human beings, we deserve freedom. It's very hard to argue against that. It doesn't require prevarication, it doesn't require ideology, it doesn't require, it doesn't require really anything but just basically a, a basic sense of decency and humanity. It's really difficult to suppress that kind of idea forever. And especially when you have 7 million Palestinians inside all of, from, from basically the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, you have approximately 7 million Jews, 7 million Palestinians in this land. So the Palestinians have gone, and let alone the Palestinian refugees, the stateless refugees in camps and outside of Palestine, um, the Palestinians have not disappeared. They have not gone away. They have not uh, evaporated. They have, they're still there, and they're more articulate today, I would say, than they've ever been before. In the political realm, also, I think that the idea is kind of becoming more prevalent. That you know, people are learning now that Israel has a role to play with regard to U.S. security in that region too. That you know, Israel has kind of been you know what what would Chomsky would call the cop on the beat for a long time. That U.S. aid um, to Israel often is conditioned by you know Israel purchasing weapons back from the United States. Israel and countries like Saudi kind of take care of American interests in that region. And, and so, you know, when the media says they've been fighting forever or this is too complex to figure out, I think it's also a way of avoiding a discussion of, of the way the United States has these countries, you know, protecting its own interests there, and, and, you know, through American aid, through American weaponry, through American political cover. Yeah, although I think there's, there's an interesting sort of, there's an interesting debate and question to be thought about, like, to what extent is Israel actually sort of, to what extent does Israel do the U.S. bidding in the region? It's always been an interesting question. I mean, the U.S. had, in fact, uh, extraordinarily positive relations with the oil-producing states of the, re the conservative oil-producing states of yeah. the region before Israel was created, um, right. at least Saudi Arabia, uh, as we know. 
And you know, I don't see when 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 uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, the Israelis were told by the Americans, stay out and we'll deal with this ourselves. So when U.S. vital interests were actually sort of threatened in a significant way, the, the Americans went in without the Israelis. And so, you know, again, the Israelis and so the Israeli aid to Israel is very different than aid to Saudi Arabia and very different from aid to Egypt. No, no state gets the kind of aid that Israel gets unconditional um, and without question, because there, there is there is no, you know, there is no equivalent to APAC on the Saudi side, you know, as reprehensible as the Saudi regime actually is. Uh, actually, last year we did a show. There were a number of anti-Netanyahu, anti-government protests last summer, I think into the fall in, in parts of Israel led by Israeli Jews. Uh, and a lot of it was, it was very much in parallel with the George Floyd protests. There was a lot of, a lot of it was around police violence, military violence. And I'm wondering if we've seen any sort of presence from Israelis, you know, in support of the Palestinian. I know that there's a you lot mean, of- You mean Israeli Jews? You don't yeah, mean Israeli Palestinians? Yeah, Israeli Jews, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm sure there must be. I mean, yes, there is, because there is, I mean, it's, it's a small, I think it's a small, small, small beleaguered minority uh, among Israeli Jews. Um, at least this is what I'm reading, and this is what I'm following, just like you following the news. Uh, of course, there, there's a small group of extraordinarily brave and courageous um, people, uh, Israeli Jews, who understand what is happening and see the, the, the historical writing on the wall and see where this is going. I mean, this is this is already a catastrophe and it's going towards further catastrophe. And they understand that and they are in solidarity with the Palestinians, but it's a tiny, I would say it's a very small minority now, alas, um, overwhelmed by the nationalist chauvinism of the majority, frankly. And you can see that in the elections in Israel um, and, and in the constant race to the right in, in, in Israeli politics. Kind of a, a parallel issue. Um, there was a, another court case the other day, which threw out a state. Uh, it was in Georgia, a state law on BDS. Yeah, and um, that's actually becoming a bigger issue now because more and more states, like Texas, a few years ago. Um, you know, uh, I work for a state school, so you know, I had to uh, allegedly sign some kind of uh, fealty to Israel or something like that. Um, but do you want to just kind of uh, tell people what BDS is and, and why it's important? BDS is a, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, and it was a call from Palestinian civil societies to uh, the world to help uh, put pressure to end the state of, of dehumanization of the Palestinians, the state of oppression of the Palestinians, uh, nonviolently by, uh, by um, supporting a, a movement to boycott um, the institutions that oppress them. Um, in a nonviolent way, sort of a call to conscience on the part of the Palestinians themselves initiated um, um, a, a while ago. And of course, BDS in, in the American media has been sort of has been demonized, has been criminalized by the Israeli state, of course, but also by um, by uh, American supporters of Israel, and of course by by as you said, Bob, you know, in Texas, in, in it's Republican legislatures, but not just Republican. As far as, I, I don't think it's just Republican legislatures. There's been this 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 automatic sort of knee-jerk anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab um, discourse about surrounding BDS, which is basically sort of demonizing BDS as anti-Semitic. Um, and there's been an attempt to shut down debates. And so the real question for me is, is not only is it outrageous to suppress people's freedom of expression? So in Texas, of course, as you said, there was a law, there still is, in fact, I think, a law on the books 
that sort of criminalizes BDS, but it's no longer at the level of individuals. Because I think students, I think, and teachers in Texas, there are four students, one of whom I think was at UH or Rice, um, sued the, 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 to, uh, to uh, overturn this outrageous limitation on what all Americans, the vast majority of Americans actually support, which is the right to boycott. You have every right to boycott, especially since uh, we, we all seem to be in agreement that that uh, we, we don't want, we're trying to, nobody wants bloodshed. So you want to sort of put pressure in a peaceful way to end a, a, a totally intolerable state of affairs. And so there, the, the tragedy and the problem is that there's a huge impediments put in the way in this country. But again, they're not going to stand, it seems to me, the test in courts. Um, but then again, you need people to sue in courts to actually get to the point of having them overturned, as was the case in Georgia this week, earlier this week. But again, the, the, point, the point, Bob, is that when it comes to an intellectual, moral debate on the substance of the issue, there's no question that, that in my experience in this country, that the Palestinian narrative of humanity and the Palestinian narrative of history you know, is uh, the human narrative uh, of, of uh, the basic human narrative has basically um, is, is very difficult to, to deny. And that's why they want to shut down debate. They're trying to shut down debate in any way they can, and they have not succeeded thus far. They've tried to intimidate, they've tried to silence, they've tried to, to do all sorts of things. But in the end, precisely because Palestine is an ecumenical issue, because it is a humanitarian issue, because it is an issue of justice, because it's uh, the colonization of a people in the 21st century, the overt 19th century colonization in the 21st century is such an anachronism. People are just tired and they want this to be resolved in a humane way. That actually makes me think of the, the you know, the recent story about the AP reporter, Emily Wilder, who uh, was fired from AP for criticizing media coverage of the of the of the attack, and I think I actually was going to ask that question. But I feel like what you just said speaks to that quite yeah, well. Actually, I haven't followed the the last. I mean, was she, was that the reason why she was? I thought I thought the whole point. I haven't followed today, so I don't know what. I know she was on Democracy Now this morning. I have not been able to hear it yet. The show, but my understanding is that she was fired because right wing conservatives in wherever they were in California or in Stan Arizona, Stanford, Stanford, at Stanford, basically went after her for tweets or for something she said when she was an undergraduate at Stanford, right? She, she had been involved in like Jewish Forces for Peace and yeah. uh, Students for Justice in Palestine. But, yeah. but as an AP reporter, I, I believe she actually put out some recent tweets criticizing the media coverage of the Israeli attack on Gaza. And that's what they actually use as the excuse. To, oh, they? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, it's obviously an attempt to silence and muzzle her. And I don't right. think it's going to, I don't think it's going to work. I, first of all, I don't think she is going to be silenced. Uh, no, no, she has no, I don't think she is going to. No, she's. That seems like, like it's given her a louder bullhorn, actually. Yeah. yeah. No, because yeah. again, these things are so crude. They're so vulgar and they're so crude. These attempts to silence and muzzle people from saying what is such a basic, obvious point that injustice should not stand, and that sort of what exactly are people afraid of, and what kind of why should anyone be afraid of telling the truth about Palestine, except if you have something to hide, which is to say, this anachronism this extraordinary anachronism of colonialism there. So I think, uh, but her, of course, her case is not the first. 
Uh, and there, there have been many, many journalists in this country censored for many different issues. But on this there, issue... There was a guy kicked off Pacifica in Houston in 2002. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard of him. But there's also, you know, going back to, the, you know, Dorothy Thompson in the 1940s, uh, who was one of the first journalists who, who in fact, was, was openly anti-Nazi. She was like, she raised the alarm about Nazism. As far as I can, you know, she, she, was, she was, in fact, an ardent Zionist. Uh, and she spoke at the Biltmore Conference in 1942, uh, passionate Zionist. And then she goes to Palestine in 1945, and she's shocked. She's like, "Wait, hang on. This is not what I, this is not what what I I was led to believe, or this is not what I thought it was, and this is unacceptable because you're encroaching on the rights of another people." And so, and then she was demonized uh, uh, for being an anti-Semite, uh, which is absurd in her case, and in so many other cases. I mean, so there's this constant attempt to muzzle and silence but it's not going to work bob it doesn't work yeah. i mean it maybe it worked in the past but i don't think it's going to work now because you see how many young people there are out there how many people have found their voice and i think the truth of the matter is you can intimidate a certain group of people but you can't intimidate uh, an entire population yeah. you simply can't do it especially well, in the case yeah. yeah in the case of that reporter there have been um already petitions with you know huge numbers of signatures from you know people you know kind of politically very diverse so yeah i, I yeah you're right um we're, we're getting close to the end i you know really again really appreciate this um and i guess i'm not necessarily asking you to be predictive but um you know there's a ceasefire which doesn't mean that the conditions in palestine have changed at all so um there's obviously a like constantly the chance of, of another violent you know eruption there will so be there's you, no there's no there, doubt i mean it's kind of like cops beating up yeah it's kind of like a, the police killing a, a black american that's going to happen you know um so what's uh you know there doesn't seem to be any kind of real uh diplomatic effort going on you know i mean to, blinken to is there up. now blinken is yeah. there now but it's kind of a pathetic honestly well, well, uh, well, um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a bankrupt, immoral policy, and and nothing Blinken says, um, you know, nothing of the rhetoric that they say is going to change right now in the immediate future. The bankrupt policy. They're going to try to put a bandaid on it, try to get this defunct Palestinian Authority to say something or do something, but nothing is going to substantially change. In fact, what's going to happen is going there's going to be more colonialism. There's going to be more oppression. There's going to be more injustice. There's going to be more racism towards Palestinians. And of course, inevitably, there's going to be more resistance. And so we're going to be back at the same point again in a, you know, it's already happening now, but it's going to be more intensified without any question in, in the future. And the only question is ultimately as individuals, let alone as collectives, but as individuals, what ethical choice do we make? Do you support injustice or do you support justice? It's not that difficult to figure out um, where justice and where injustice lies on this issue. Scott? Thank, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's been great having you on. Uh, we've actually been wanting to do a show on this uh, for quite a while. So yeah. um, very much thanks for joining us today. Yeah. I really wish you were happier circumstances. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you both. Hope, hopefully in the fall, we'll be able to meet in person again and you know, things will be a little better. Yeah, no, I meant in Palestine as well. As no, here. I know that. I know that. <laughs> okay. I know that. Yeah, I know. For sure. I look forward to it, to, to meeting again. Yeah. Thanks right. so much. Really appreciate it. Take care, it. guys. All right. Bye-bye. Good luck. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. Hey, folks. Uh, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast. If you want to follow us on any of our social media, uh, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And then if you... Uh, 
want to make a donation, please go to Patreon and become a recurring donor or, or a patron on Patreon or one of our M19 uh, brigade. You can go to patreon.com backslash green red podcast. Or if you want to make a donation, uh, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button. Uh, it's been great talking today and uh, we will be talking to you again really soon.